0: really dense passage of scripture to go over this morning. Several times during my prep, I thought, why didn't I do this in more than one week? But I didn't turn around, so we're going to just tackle it all. Um, We're not going to talk about everything in here, so as always, if something strikes you that either doesn't make sense or you have questions about, uh, feel free to text that into the Q&R number, and we will go over those questions at the end of the message today. Let's pray. God, thank you for these people. Thank you for this place, the opportunity we have to just show up at this building and, and uh, proclaim who you are and sing your praises and give you thanks and uh, bear one another's burdens. And um, <laughs> God, it's, it's just a joy. I just I pray for all of us that we would just feel how joyous it is to be um, knitted together in the family of God. Um, Lord God, you are you are shaping us, you are growing us, you are making us into the image of your son, and, and you're doing that. One of the primary ways you're doing that is through your word. And I just pray that that would take place this morning, that your spirit would fall on our hearts in a fresh way, that our minds would be open and tuned to who you are and in, th- in ways that we, maybe we've never thought about before, maybe we need encouragement in. God, maybe some of us are are wandering and, and we need to be uh, course corrected and uh, God, uh, We've all brought different lives into this room, and and you are uh, mighty to minister to us as we most need. I just pray that you would do a work as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, I ran the events department at the Salvation Army Croc Center. And we had these uh, birthday party rooms that were right next to the swimming pool. And you could like rent uh, like for like 12 or 15 kids, this kind of, you'd get cake and and you could have your presents in the party room and then you'd all go swimming or whatever. But occasionally um, I would get a call because I, I managed the entire building. I would get a call for a birthday party rental in one of our larger bay rooms and, and our, our, our bay rooms were quite a bit bigger, about the size of the room next door. And invariably, the person that needed that much space for the birthday party had a one-year-old. Because, have you ever been to a one-year-old's birthday party? It's not really for the one-year-old, is it? It's for mom and dad and all their friends, right? Because if you need 50 people to come to the one-year-old's birthday party that they're not going to remember, I just have questions. But we did these birthday parties, and so I've been to a number of one-year-olds' birthday parties, and and the best part of the one-year-old birthday party is when the one-year-old, if you're you know if you're a modern parent who cares about such things, you haven't given your child sugar at all their entire life, and they've turned one, and then you give them a cupcake. Right. And then they and they look at the cupcake and they kind of touch it and it's kind of gooey. And and they're encouraged to eat the cupcake and they just kind of put it up in their mouth. And when it hits their tongue, their eyes just go like this, and their mind is blown, and they've entered into a whole new reality of life. But occasionally you get that kid who looks at the cupcake, who touches the cupcake and is all like, this is sticky and tastes the cupcake and goes, what is this? And they just like push it away. Like, I'm not eating this weird thing. Mom, what is wrong with you? Give me some peas. (laughs) And you think, bummer, dude, you're missing out. You are missing out on something magical. And I think (laughs) what Paul is doing here is he is encouraging the Colossian church not to be the kid who rejects the cupcake, to, to really go all in with Jesus, that he, has, he is this gift to us that we are meant to be all about, to bring holy into our hearts and lives. And that some of us maybe, maybe just don't. And, and I don't know why we, don't, we do that. Maybe we, we just don't trust. Maybe there's, there's some fear of change. For us, Maybe there's some cynicism about faith. But Paul is warning the Colossians here not just to dabble with Jesus and to dabble with some other things, but instead to find everything that they need in Christ. And so I want to talk about four ways that we find things in Christ this morning. I want to take a look at this passage and say that we have security in Christ and Paul tells us we have resources in Christ. We have identity in Christ, and we have benefits in Christ. So let's look at this first set of verses. We have security in Christ. I'm going to back up a little bit to what Peter taught us last week in verse 3. In him, in Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. For I may be absent in body, but I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see how well-ordered you are and the strength of your faith in Christ. So he's been riffing for a chapter already about how amazing Jesus is. We're a few weeks into Colossians, and over and over and over again, Jesus is the focus. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But then the warning comes, don't let anyone deceive you. And it's interesting that this isn't, if you read like the Galatian letter or the first Corinthian letter, Paul is upset because these churches are doing weird stuff and they need to be rebuked and corrected and realigned to the gospel. But he says, you know what? I'm, I'm excited, you guys, in Colossae, you guys are doing a good job. You are faithful to Jesus. But he still warns them. And I think that's important because I look out at our church in this season. I was just talking to some people this morning and, and, and you know the, the question is, how's it going? And that's a weird question, I don't know. But, but I look out in the room and I see people that are meeting Jesus for the first time. I see people that are renewing their faith in Christ, that are practicing the spiritual disciplines afresh, that are having a vision of what the gospel means to their entire life that's bigger than they ever have before. And I think, wow. God is moving in this community of people. But this warning is needed even to a body of people that is flourishing. We need to hear the warning. If we are not pressing towards Christ, if we are not all in, we are drifting. There's no neutral in our spiritual lives. There is, It's the, the classic example of, of, of the river and being, being in the boat in the river. And if you are not... Uh, rowing upstream, you are drifting downstream. And I think some of us need to internalize that this morning, that maybe you've lived your life kind of in, in neutral with Jesus. You've, you've just kind of, you've been a Christian for many, many years, or maybe you've just recently become a Christian and you just kind of are sitting around. Well, there's work to be done. There's things to do. There's disciplines to pursue. There's gifts to practice. There's character to, to develop, there's community and relationship to form. Can't help but think that maybe some of us are, are really nailing it. Maybe, maybe you're like just really good at reading your Bible. But you don't pray and, and you, don't, you don't use your gifts in the church and you don't contribute and you're not in relationship. And so you're in the boat too, but you just have one oar and you're just kind of spinning around, still going downstream. We need to be moving further in to Christ. And Paul says, don't be deceived by arguments that sound reasonable. This is a hard thing because we live in an age uh, with the internet, and we can't tell what's true anymore a lot of times. Proverbs eighteen seventeen says, the first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever read an article or, or watched a video and just been like, yeah, that guy is so right on? And then you, you see a rebuttal and go, oh no, that guy, he's way smarter than the first guy. It's confusing. Turns out that figuring out what to think, what to believe can be challenging. If you're not careful, you can go down the rabbit hole of YouTube conspiracy videos. You can learn about Flat Earth and QAnon and the fake moon landing, all that stuff. And, and the reason those videos have thousands and millions of viewers and, it, and people get tied into those things is because they sound reasonable. Ideas that are deceptive are by definition Reasonable. If they weren't reasonable, they wouldn't deceive anyone. If somebody comes in here and goes, hey, everybody, let's all go set our hair on fire. Nobody's going to do that because that's dumb. But deceptive ideas kind of make you go, oh, yeah, maybe. So what's Paul's advice for protection against deception? He says in verse six, so then as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. So question, church, how did you receive Christ? How did you become a Christian? What? Faith, by faith, yeah, by grace, through faith. The way that we live needs to be comparable to the faith that we have received. We have received Christ by faith. We live by faith. Continue to live in him is the first command that Paul gives in this letter. The first thing that he wants to tell the Colossians to do is continue to live in him. So what does that mean? The first thing it means is that we need to change our mind. Romans 12 says that we are called to renew our minds. And I want to give an illustration here that I'm stepping out on a limb because I really don't have any... um, experience with this, but I talked to my wife about it. Imagine being pregnant. Some of you have been pregnant. I believe there is a period of time, most of the time, when you find out you're pregnant, but before anything really happens, right? Maybe, unfortunately, you're going to get sick in a little bit, at some point, the baby's gonna start growing and pushing and moving and, and rolling around. But right at the beginning, you're like, okay, I'm, I, I have a, a life inside of me. Do you wait until you feel the baby kick before you make changes to how you live? I, I don't think so, I hope not. in my experience, you immediately kick the cat out of the house because it will you know poison you and you you stop drinking alcohol and you stop drinking coffee and you start doing yoga and whatever else and and you are you sign up for breathing classes on day one, right not because you have this evidence that there is something going on in you, but because you have this you have believed by faith that the little line on this on the stick told you that there is a new life in you. And so if you're like, I don't know what it means to be in Christ, the first thing you need to do is just to realize that you are in Christ. And even if you don't feel any different, even if your life doesn't look any different, even if there's no like warm, fuzzy feeling inside of you, continually reorienting your mind to going, oh, I am in Christ and Christ is in me, is the first step in protecting yourself from deception. We need to internalize this reality. Christian, you are a fundamentally different creature than the person that does not have Christ. And if you're in here this morning and you're not a Christian, maybe you're, maybe you're just a church person. You've been around the church for a long time or maybe somebody brought you and you wouldn't claim allegiance to Jesus Even though on the outside, we all look the same, on the inside, you are lacking something that God wants you to have, and that's a real relationship with Jesus and the dwelling of Christ inside of you. Uh, Pastor Thibidi Anabwale says this, don't think of Christ as a Savior outside of you doing things for you. Think of Christ as a Savior inside of you doing things in you. So what is Christ doing? We're gonna gonna get a little geeky this morning with some grammar. I know not everybody's thing is grammar. It's not really mine either, but it's helpful here. Paul says that, he gives us four words to think about. The first thing he says is that we are rooted. Let me read it correctly. We are being rooted. So that word rooted is what's called a perfect passive, and we don't need to get into the details, but it basically means that something happened to you in the past and someone else did it. It happened to you in the past, and someone else did it to you. You, as a plant, were placed in the solid ground. You were in Christ in a foundational way, and that was done to you and for you in the past as a work of God's grace. If you are a Christian this morning, Christ has completed the work of rooting you in him already in the past. Then the question is, do, do you believe that? Do you trust that Christ has saved you, that he reconciled you to God, that he made you his? This is foundationally who you are. Do you see yourself that way? The second word we have is built up. Built up is also passive, but it is present tense. Somebody else is doing something to you right now. You are being built up. Built up, is it's an architectural term that Paul uses to talk often about the church. You, church, are being made into God's temple. And that's individual in one sense, but it, greater than that, it's, it's also about the body of Christ. Listen to Paul use the same language in Ephesians chapter two. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Paul says, you are being built up and he's talking about the church. We are individual pieces of the body of Christ. For any of you that have done construction, if you've ever put up walls, if you have two walls that are um, 90 degrees to each other and you, you stand them up, they're pretty wobbly. Two by four walls, even two by six walls are kind of like, kind of jello when they're just nailed together top and bottom and they're just standing on the, uh, yeah, on the ground. What happens when you fire that nail gun into the side of those studs? They instantly lock together and those two walls are really, really stiff. That's what the body of Christ is like. When we are, when we are alone, we are just kind of waving in the wind. We are wandering But when we are together, when we are being built up as a body, that's when we get strong. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that you have a role to play in the community of God's people? That you are currently being built up by God for one another? Do you see yourself that way? Next, he says that we are established. This is another present passive. This is something that someone else does to you in the present, right now, you are being established in the faith. How? He says, well, by being taught, by learning. Some of us are new to the faith, and, and you know, we aren't so well established. Some, some of us may might say, like, I don't really know the Bible very well, and I'm confused about this, and that's okay. Christ is doing a work in you right now through teaching. So be teachable, be curious, ask questions, look for answers, but make sure to be humble. You guys, when I was 15, I knew so much stuff. I was so smart. My parents are here, they'll tell you. I was really, really smart. I'm going to be 40 on Wednesday, and I know a lot less now. I don't know how that works, but I, I, I... There are so many things that you think that you know that you need to unknow and grow in as you walk with Jesus. Do you and I, do we believe that we have things to learn or have we figured everything out? Because no matter how long you've walked with Jesus, God is still teaching you. He's placing you in conversations. He's giving you practical lessons. He's shaping your heart and your mind through scripture and the books you read and the community you keep. His spirit speaking to your heart. And that's a process that is happening right now, and Jesus is doing it in you. My friend Peter Lublink, who who blessed us last week, says this. He says, uh, Half of what I believe today is wrong. I just don't know what half. And I think that's a beautiful way to, to think humbly about the things that we know. Be a learner. Be curious, be someone who allows Christ to teach you. So this last word here, overflowing with gratitude, overflowing, now we're changing a little bit. This is a present active verb. This means that this is happening right now and you and I are doing it ourselves. Overflowing with gratitude, are you thankful? Do you rejoice in Christ? Do you sing, do you pray? Are you excited to worship God? I know everybody goes through seasons of pain and struggle, but, but is living the Christian life overall, is it a chore or is it a joy? And then is the grace and goodness and kindness and joy of the Holy Spirit actually coming out of you? Or is something else coming out of you? And some of you might say, well, I'm not really that kind of an emotional person. I, I just don't really, I don't overflow with things. But here's the thing. We have this bucket in the basement that's over a little leak. And um, the leak just drips every so often. Uh, and it's in the part of the basement that hasn't been remodeled yet, so don't, don't it's not affecting your children. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It's behind a locked door. Uh, but the humidity level in that part of the building is such that nothing ever dries out. So drip after drip, after drip, after drip, slowly fills the bucket up to the point that the, t- uh, the surface tension of the water is the only thing that's keeping it from overflowing. And then one final drip is all it takes for something to dribble over the side. Now, that's not a lot, but it's still overflowing. Is your life overflowing with gratitude? See, so you, can, you can put a bucket in this room, which thankfully we haven't had to in a while since they fixed the roof, but you can put a bucket in this room and it will drip maybe much more than that. But because the humidity in this part of the room is so much less, the water in the bucket will dry up before it gets to the top. And I wonder for some of us, if we do not overflow with gratitude, not because we aren't being poured into by God, but because we are putting ourselves in environments where all of that gratitude just dries up and goes away. We are allowing things in our lives, things, things in, in our uh, relational strife and media and fear and national politics and all the things that get us sideways to just dry up that gratitude in our hearts. And, it, and Paul's not expecting everyone to jump for joy and be a, you know, a hand raiser during worship or whatever, but if gratitude for what Christ has done for you is not coming out of your life somehow, what's going on in there? It's worth asking the question. So we have, we have this security in Christ. We, these are these things that he has done for us. He has rooted us and built, he's building us up and established us and called us to just overflow with thanksgiving. But what about other things that we might want to go to? Christ is pretty good, but is he really that good? Is Christ really the best? Paul goes on to say that we have resources in Christ. In verse eight, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. See, there are lots of other things that we can ground our lives in besides Jesus, and Paul warns us against that. There are some kinds of philosophy out there that are not grounded in Christ, and they're dangerous. And don't get hung up on the idea of philosophy as a word. It's just a word that means to love wisdom, and there are a lot of philosophers today that do Christian philosophy that are um, trying to uh, work out rational arguments for God, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But there are some philosophies out in the world that are dangerous. And dangerous is a big word, but Paul says that they might take you captive. That's violent language. They might grab you and pull you away. And for Paul, this is serious business. So where do these philosophies come from? He says, first, human tradition. The thing is like people make stuff up all the time and people believe them. And then the next generation believes them and the next generation believes them and pretty soon, what we all do. We just all do it. Jesus talks about this in, in Mark 7. Mark writes, "'The Pharisees and some of the scribes "'who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. "'They observed that some of the disciples "'were eating bread with unclean, "'that is, unwashed hands.'" For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping with the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they've washed. And there are many other customs they keep have received and keep like the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. So Jesus calls out the Pharisees not for breaking God's law, but for making up their own rules and making them equal to God's law. And this is what, unfortunately, traditional philosophy can do. We, we do something because we do it, and it might not be a problem that we do it. I mean, you look at washing your hands, washing your dishes, that seems normal, right? It's deeper than that, but, but still, like it's not a big deal, but we've made it a big deal, and we've let it replace Jesus. Yaroslav Pelikan says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. We're a part of a 2,000 year old church. Our heritage goes back thousands of years past that to the Jewish people. There are traditions that are worth holding on to. But when they take the place of Christ, they become dangerous and they can snatch us away from his goodness. When we start hearing ourselves say, This is how. They used to do it. Or this is how we've always done it. to wave our finger at people. We have to ask, well, does that look like Jesus? But these philosophies don't just come from human tradition, they come from the elements of the world. That Greek word is the stoicheia. Uh, and what I think Paul is talking about here is a group of evil spiritual beings. The stoicheia are one category of words that Paul uses to describe the spiritual world around us. He uses the same word in Galatians 4. He says, but in the past, since you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not gods. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements, the stoicheia? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? The reality, and if you've been a part of our church community for a long time, we, this comes up frequently, more frequently than you'd think in the Scriptures, is that we are in the midst of a spiritual war. And while Jesus has won that war, we're going to talk about that at the end this morning, the enemy combatants are still wandering around trying to make mischief. And their intent is to destroy God's people. There's both human foolishness and malevolent spiritual power that wants to turn you from Christ, to add things to faith in Christ, to mix and match your spiritual pursuits. So why shouldn't you do that? Why shouldn't you pursue those things? Why shouldn't you add to the gospel a little of this, a little of that? Why shouldn't you treat your faith as a religious buffet of beliefs? Because everything that God is, is found In Jesus, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Think about that statement. Everything that God is, every spiritual power, every glorious blessing, every character, uh, quality that we would ever want, everything that's the best of everything in the universe, is found in Jesus. And I want to I be careful as we think through this idea of philosophies that would capture us and drag us away because Paul is talking to the church. We're going to get into some specifics about what the Colossian church was dealing with last week, but they're, they're, they have this Jewish mysticism that is infiltrating their body. And it's kind of Jewish and it's kind of Christian and it's kind of weird. And this is what Paul is talking about. And so easy in the church today, we can talk about the philosophies of the world and we can look outside the church and see all the people outside doing weird things, but people without Christ completely. Paul says, I don't judge outsiders. Judgment comes to the house of God. These are Religious philosophies, these are philosophies that sound kind of right, that they're deceptive and they kind of make sense. These false teachers are posing as followers of Christ. Paul says this is going to happen in Acts 20. He says, I know that after my departure, he's speaking to the elders at Ephesus, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. So as we think about the things that would lead us astray, don't be primarily thinking about all the bad people out there with weird ideas. Think about all the weird ideas that are polluting the church. And the warning here for all of us is to be careful. And I think for most of us, it's pretty general, but there may be be some specificity in here. You need to know yourself in this area. I grew up um, uh, under a teacher named Bob Davis, and uh, he was a um, great Bible teacher. And for a period of his life, he was commissioned uh, by another organization to do an in-depth study of the occult and the New Age. And uh, he was just fascinating to listen to. He knew everything about transcendental meditation and magic mushrooms and all, everything else, you know, whatever. You, he, he had it all uh, t- tucked away. But one of the things he said is like, it, I felt a distinct call from God to benefit his church by learning about these things and teaching them. But I would never recommend anyone go down the rabbit holes I did without a specific calling from God because it's dangerous stuff and it will draw you away. And I've never forgot that. That there are just some things that we should stay away from. Anything that you attempt to tune into or practice or get involved with that is outside of Christ comes from real spiritual power. How can it be anything else? If it's not Jesus and it's spiritually powerful, where is it coming from? coming from the kingdom of darkness, and it wants to destroy you. And the deceptive thing is, is that false teaching in the church does not attempt to get us to forsake Christ, simply to add to Christ, to seek something in addition to Christ. But there is nothing outside of Christ that can save you because Christ contains the fullness of God. All of God is in Christ. So maybe some of you uh, have internalized this and you would say, okay, so then I'm just gonna read my Bible because that's safe. That's God's word, right? That's good. You should read your Bible, but, but we shortchange ourselves there too. Uh, St. Augustine said this, let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, It belongs to his master. There are many places in the world where human beings made in the image of God have discovered truth, and all truth is God's truth. We don't have to be afraid of the things that people who are not followers of Jesus come up with, but we do need to hold it up to Christ. We do need to compare it to Jesus and say, is this really true? Can I Accept this as it true because it aligns with what I know to be true in Christ or is it false? And one of the best ways to do that, in my opinion, is to understand Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God. Let me read a little bit for you here from Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These are some of the most basic values of God's kingdom. And whatever you are into if it's not aligned with these things and what follows in the Sermon on the Mount, I I have questions. Why doesn't that look like Jesus? Why doesn't that look like his manifesto for the kingdom? Because the thing is, we don't graduate from the truth of the gospel to some deeper spirituality. We grow in a deeper understanding of who Christ is, but we never leave the basic truth that we've been saved by grace and Jesus Christ is our sufficiency. Paul said, we are secure in Christ and we have resources in Christ. The third thing we have is identity in Christ. Look at verse 11. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So these verses are super complex and there's a lot of ink that's been spilled over what exactly this means. There's a lot of ways to read it, but I'm going to tell you the way that makes sense to me. And if, if you don't think it makes sense, you can let me know. We are, he says, we're connected to, we're identified with Jesus. But how, how is that? We are spiritually circumcised. He says we are circumcised without hands. This is the Old Testament identity marker for the people of God was circumcision. And by being in Christ, in his crucifixion, I think putting off the body of flesh, Paul is talking about Jesus' crucifixion. We are spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit and identify with him in burial and resurrection by our faith. I think the best way to understand these verses is by understanding that both the circumcision made without hands and this baptism is spiritual. Both as things accomplished by Jesus on the cross and things that the Holy Spirit has done to us by grace through faith. Now, there's if you have a uh, if you have a Presbyterian background, uh, this is a really good gotcha verse for infant baptism. We're Baptists; we don't do that. Um, I'm sure there's a Baptist way to handle that. Maybe that was it. But um, there's a lot of discussion about exactly what these words mean and whether they're spiritual or or physical. And uh, whatever you come to. The point is, we have been made to look like Jesus. We have been, the things that have happened to Jesus in some sense have happened to us. And whatever happened to Christ in in, in that thing happening to us lets us know that we are connected to Jesus by our very identity, all of the things that are going wrong with you, your struggle against lust or envy or pride or depression or anxiety or your lack of faith in the promise of God for the future. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. You've been identified with him, not just in his death, but in his resurrection. And if you actually internalize and believe that a dead man walked out of a tomb in Jerusalem 2000 years ago you should also believe that you have been given the power to overcome the things that are tripping you up today if you are in Christ his supernatural power is in you you are of like type to Christ and that doesn't mean that like everything is going to be awesome all at once that doesn't mean that, that things don't get difficult. That doesn't mean that the Christian life is in perseverance and pain and striving towards the goal. It is. But in those moments when we are despairing of our lives because everything is going wrong or I can't get over this thing or why is this happening to me, recognize that you have been made the same as Jesus through baptism. What has happened to him has happened to you. And his salvation that he worked out on the cross for you is in you today. And you have access to that power for holiness and godliness. Lastly, we have benefits in Christ. Verse 13, when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to his cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So three things he says have happened. The first thing is we have been made alive. Eternal life for you, believer, starts right now. We don't wait to experience the kingdom of God someday. He is already broken into the creation through Jesus. And we've been raised to new life and been made new creations. Secondly, our debt has been erased. There is a legal status against us. We are sinners. We have broken God's law. All of us has failed to live up to God's holy and good standards. In the, in the book of Common Prayer, there's a, a, a pretty well-known confession that says, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Every person in this room can pray that if we're honest. We have accumulated this debt of sin, but Jesus has canceled that debt on the cross. And thirdly, our enemies have been defeated. Jesus' death and resurrection resulted in the defeat and shame of the cosmic powers of darkness. And this is something that I think we forget to talk about when we share the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, it's hugely important. Humanity is enslaved to the rulers and authorities The dark powers of the air, and Jesus has defeated him in his cross. They no longer have claim over our lives. Paul warned us earlier not to be led captive by them, but they're still out there, but they've been disarmed. They've been paraded publicly and shamed in their defeat, and they cannot control us if we don't let them. So I'm going to tell you a story. It was in Time Magazine in 1950. Uh, uh, They did a story on Wheaton College in Illinois. It's a Christian college. Uh, And they write, uh, Wheaton, a little non-denominational college which still bears the stamp of its strict fundamental heritage, no movies, smoking, card playing, dancing, or drinking, and a 10 p.m. curfew. It goes on to say that... um, talk about this chapel service they were having. And, and, and Wheaton, at the time, it, it bore the outward signs of religious practice. There were all, all the rules for the young people to follow to show that they were good Christians. But one night at this chapel service, the article in Time goes on to tell, the Spirit of God fell in power among a, several hundred, up to a thousand young people. And the students began to come up to the lectern one by one and publicly confess their sin. And they began. They, they confessed and they glorified God and they walked off the platform and began to reorient their hearts and lives around Christ. And this chapel service, which was supposed to last for an hour and, and the, the, the confession was unplanned, It went on for two straight days, nonstop, just a constant stream of young people confessing sin, rededicating their hearts to Christ. And they're all at a Christian college and the Spirit just touched them all so deeply and they realized like, we are not orienting our lives around Christ. We have oriented our lives around something else and that needs to change. There's one student that the Time article quotes He says, Last night I looked at my yearbook, and after my name it said, Baseball is my main interest. I want to say, Christ. Christ is my main interest. Is that what we want to say, church? Is that the kind of people that we are? Where we've got our things, our hobbies our careers, our family, but all of those things fall away because Christ is my main interest. We have security in Christ. We have resources in Christ. We have identity in Christ and we have benefits in Christ. And Jesus is offering us everything, his whole self, which is all that God is. And we are fools if we don't take it. Church, I want us to be people who just stuff the cupcake in our mouths and are just blown away by how amazing it is. And I hope that's what you want for your life as well. Let's do some questions. Okay, what does this say? If we are to rid ourselves of Jesus and ideas, but also to be open to sources of truth that are not overtly Christian, what are the ways that we are to hold these up to Christ? Yeah, so I think think the primary way to protect ourselves from false teaching and to hold other ideas up to Christ, like the question says, is to be saturated in what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And I would point back again to the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's the Beatitudes, the kind of people that God blesses, whether it's how Christians are supposed to treat their enemies or how Christians are supposed to treat uh, those that we have, uh, are angry with, how Christians are supposed to pray or care for the poor, these things, we, if, if you've been a church person for a long time, we just kind of read these stories about Jesus. And Jesus is so nice and sweet and stuff. But like it's actually the foundation of his government. Like someday we will all live in a land where the Sermon on the Mount is what everybody does with their lives. And praise God for that. And so when we come across ideas, whether they're things in church or books we read or things in the news or whatever, and we hold that up and go like, wow, that guy sounds really smart, but he's a real jerk. Does that line up with who Jesus is? Maybe I should ask some questions. Maybe, maybe this practice seems like there's a lot of power there, but these people are using it to curse others. Does that sound like Jesus? Wow, this movement has a lot of like pomp and circumstance and they've got Bible verses everywhere, but they, they talk really poorly about foreigners. The Bible's got a lot to say about how we should care about foreigners. And so I think being people that are saturated in the word of God and the ethics of the kingdom of God as Jesus teaches us primarily but throughout the scriptures, that's what we need to hold everything up to. And we need to ask hard questions of the people we follow and the movements we support and go like, is that really does that really line up with who Jesus calls us to be? Is, is this thing gonna be going on when Jesus is ruling the world with a rod of iron? Can I can I imagine that happening? And if you can't, I it's a good. Good time to ask a question. Is this really coming from Christ? We're going to take communion. It's a good question. Paul says that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And we need to be people that get our heads and our hearts wrapped around this. The tool, one of the tools, and maybe the primary tool that God has designed to help us wrap our minds and hearts around this idea is the communion meal. Jesus says to us, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood of the new covenant poured out. And there is a reality in this practice, this habit that we have every week that we shouldn't miss. This is, it's not just... My, uh, my daughter used to say, "It's not just a snack for the big kids? Jesus is where our life comes from and we get to participate in his life in us. And by taking the bread and the cup into our bodies, we are reminded that his life, his power, his, his cross-shaped and resurrection-shaped power lives inside of us. And so as we sing some more, I would invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup, go back to your seat, and just meditate a little bit on the the reality of this text, the realities that Paul so wanted the Colossians to remember, a church that was doing really well, that Christ is everything for us. And ask the Holy Spirit of God to show you places in your life where you're maybe a little out of alignment We all get out of alignment, right? So we go through our days, our weeks, and things shift. And we recognize maybe like, oh man, I'm just not really diving into Jesus the way that I should be. And use this time to just recalibrate your heart towards him. If you want to sit or stand or or kneel at the prayer rugs, they're available as well while we sing.